Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your host for this week. It's me, Farmers Guardian news editor Olivia Midgley. And me, Farmers Guardian editor Ben Briggs. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through all your favourite platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure that you stay up to date with all the latest episodes. This week, and will it, won't it, the roulette wheel of planning. And if your application, whether it's converting an existing barn, building a new house or even installing a wind turbine, will get past the planners. Why is there so much disparity between local authority planning departments and why does it feel as though nimbyism always rules the day? Talking of nimbies, the renewable sector is often one that gets a rough ride in the planning department, especially when it comes to siting a wind turbine or a solar farm. But renewable energy generation will become more important as we move towards our goal of net zero carbon emissions. Plus, it can bring in another much needed income stream to the farm gate and, of course, help meet our growing energy needs. So what does the future hold for this technology? More on that later in the pod. But first, and to tell us more about what needs to change in the planning system, I spoke to Fenella Collins, CLA Head of Planning, about their rural powerhouse campaign and why the government needs to act now in order to bring greater prosperity to the countryside. The CLA's rural powerhouse campaign was launched during the 2019 general election and its ultimate aim is to unleash the potential of the rural economy not least by closing the rural productivity gap and transforming the lives of, of people in, who live and work in the countryside. It has five distinct themes, and this planning policy paper is the second theme of the campaign. Now, when we're speaking to farmers, planning is one of those things that most people have had some experience with, and it's not usually a good experience, or it's taken them a long time to get where they need to be, for example. What, what do you think is going wrong with planning policy in its current form and, and what are the issues that people are commonly facing? The planning system has become more and more complex over, over the years. Members of the CLA tell me that the planning system is seen as by them as one of the most significant barriers to economic growth in rural areas. And of course, but at the same time, there are a number of challenges that are facing the rural economy, not least responding to community needs, they have, uh, in rural communities, have the same needs as in urban areas for housing, jobs, transport and services, etc. But they often feel that their needs are ignored, in a way, by government at all levels. There's also a need to level up the economy. Um, the economy in rural areas has lagged behind urban areas for many years. Um, largely, I think this is because the prevailing view is that the traditional image of rural economies is dominated by primary industries such as agriculture and forestry and seasonal tourism businesses. In fact, the sectoral composition of, of, of businesses in rural areas is, is largely similar to that in urban areas, but this is not recognised in national policy. The business base in rural areas is not just growing, but it's also becoming much more sophisticated. But in spite of all of this, rural areas have an 8% lower productivity compared to urban areas and continue to face a skills shortage. But the planning system, whether it's planning policy or planning regulation, does not seem to understand this. And that is what this policy paper is, is trying to change. Yeah, it almost feels like the government thinks we want to concrete over the countryside at times. Is that something that, that you see? 
that's certainly um, a, you know something that people throw at me at, at times, and that is most definitely not the case. There will always be the need to take into account the impact of development on landscapes and, and countryside. But I think that there is this general view that, that rural areas are only about agriculture and forestry, and in, when in fact they are running a multitude of different types of, of, of rural businesses, because largely because farmers have been have been asked by the government for many years to diversify their farming income. But this is in in, in the face of a planning system that uh, has has put a number of barriers in their way. This is it. And, and, and one of the big things in the new agriculture bill is, as you say, moving away from this reliance on direct support and diversifying farming enterprises. So businesses do have alternative income streams. So on the one hand, the government wants farmers to diversify, to build, to, de- to develop. But on the other hand, it, it can feel like they've got their hands tied behind the back. That's right. I mean, CLA members tell me and have been telling me for years that, that they see the uh, planning application and decision-making process for business and diversification-related projects as plagued by delays, additional costs and unrealistic demands. They feel that a lot of the the planning decisions made on rural economic development proposals are are taken in the face of outdated perceptions of what the economy actually is in rural areas, and often and and an inconsistency of approach in terms of decision-making, which seems to fly in the face of rural interests. So I think it's hardly surprising that, that, that rural communities feel that their, their needs for jobs, homes and services are ignored. Mm-hmm. And of course, like you say, as we level up and we try and attract these entrepreneurs coming from cities to rural areas and, and young people with the skills that we need for, for rural businesses to thrive, there's going to be a, a need, isn't there, for more housing, more infrastructure, amenities and that sort of thing. And, and that's where farmers and landowners' roles really come in there. And that's why Boris Johnson's slogan of build, build, build is, is great. But it's so hard, isn't it, with, with the way policy is at the moment. What needs to change, Fenella, in your view? I think there needs to be some changes within national planning policy, within the national planning policy framework, in that the rural economy policies in there need to reflect the fact that we actually have a much broader rural economy than than, than people believe is the case. But I also think that the economic development section of the national planning policy framework could be brought to the front of, of the document so that it reinforces the importance of economic development. But equally, there has to be a change to policy about how we deliver, for example, new housing, small quantities of new housing in smaller rural villages. At the moment, they seem to be destined into a, into a permanent cycle of, de- of decline because they've been deemed to be unsustainable because they have no services left. Well, they have no services left because we haven't been allowed to build any new houses in there. So there are changes there that need to take place. We are going to see accelerating counter-urbanisation as a result of of the current COVID-19 epidemic. And these are really real opportunities for bringing highly skilled people with entrepreneurial skills into rural areas who will have the most important effect on, on the rural economy. There are so many hurdles, aren't there? What would you say is the biggest barrier at the moment? The, the, the biggest problem that they see is that with a plan-led planning system, you have to support your planning application with with huge numbers of surveys, reports and and other paraphernalia with associated very high costs. Having submitted the planning application with all of these this evidence, 
they have no guarantee that they will get a beneficial outcome at the other end. And if they get a refusal, that is, that means tens of thousands of pounds that is just completely wasted for the farmer landowner. Income, the, 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 the payment for these reports and surveys comes out of uh, fluctuating farm incomes. It doesn't come from any uplift in development value. And so for me, one of the, the biggest areas of improvement to the planning system would be the to try and push these costs back in the planning application process. And this means that we, the government should relook again at the permission in principle concept that, that is in place for uh, housing related development and actually open it up to rural economic development as well. So that a farmer and la- or landowner land manager is able to obtain a very brief and inexpensive permission in principle and then feels encouraged to come back at a later stage with the what is known as the technical details of, of that, that that will also need to be decided it's it's pushing the costs back in the process but it gives the, the, the farmer landowner the the encouragement to do so there are a number of other i mean the, the report makes a number of other recommendations the, the problem of, of unsustainable villages. There are thousands of villages that are deemed to be unsustainable in local plans and therefore are not able to, practically unable to get any development in them at all. This has prevented organic the organic incremental growth of villages over many years, and many of them are um, destined to a permanent cycle of decline. We would like to see these villages brought back to life with small quantities of new dwellings at fairly regular intervals in order that the planning system delivers not just for economic development but also for rural community needs for, for, for housing. If the planning system were to be changed so that it actually is easier to negotiate by planning applicants then there's a real chance that it will help to boost the rural economy and rural communities too and with increased income coming into the rural economy there is a huge opportunity for the rural economy to help to underpin the delivery of biodiversity improvements and natural capital goods and services. CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this COVID crisis, the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more, go to www.cla.org.uk. Now, as Fenella Collins just mentioned there, diversifications are becoming more and more popular, but one sector which often gets a hard time with the planning officers is the renewable sector. But as Alistair Frew of Lodder's Solicitors tells me, the technology will form a bigger and important part of our landscape going forwards. He also explains why battery storage is becoming less science fiction and more of a new normal. My name is Alistair Frew, a partner at Lodder's Solicitors. So Alistair, the coronavirus pandemic, which saw the UK set a new record for the longest period the grid has ever operated without coal, could act as a catalyst for further investment in the sector with eyes on leaders across the world to reduce global warming. There's a lot of talk about COVID bringing this reset moment, isn't there, in terms of becoming more climate friendly. Where do you see renewables fitting in within that and, and how can farmers and landowners benefit? Well, the as we exit, or hopefully exit, the COVID crisis, 
a lot of people will find themselves working in a different physical location to where they were before and the energy network is not necessarily set up at this moment in time for large numbers of people to be working from their homes. So there's been one or two energy problems actually during the crisis with not enough energy in the right place because the network isn't quite constri constructed for people working en masse from home for long periods of time. So there's huge opportunities for new additions to the network up and down the nation. As people start working from different places, the network will need to be slightly reconfigured. And that's where local producers of electricity, farmers, landowners, can get involved uh, offering their land for the generation of electricity. And it gets plugged into the network and can help supply this, this changed working environment. And, and re renewable energy, of course, is, is one tool which can also, it has this added benefit, doesn't it, of helping agriculture achieve its goals on net zero carbon emissions. And often that's without hindering food production, which is really important. Which technologies are you guys seeing become more popular in rural areas? And, and you know, which technologies in particular can farmers really use and help not only alleviate the energy issues, but also the climate crisis as well? Well, a lot of farmers always have done, but increasingly I'm seeing great big uh, anaerobic digesting systems put up uh, on farmland. Generally, those supply energy for the farm itself, probably rather than supplying to the grid, equally heat, for, heat to power conversion systems. But a few years ago, we saw lots and lots and lots of small wind farms being put up they then stopped when the government, frankly, uh, responding to NIMBYs, the government withdrew support for onshore wind. Uh, we all know this country has loads of wind and onshore wind generation should be an enormously well-developed sector. And it is an enormously well-developed sector, but it, the brakes were put on 10 years ago. The brakes were taken off earlier this year. The government announced, in fact, just before the crisis, the COVID crisis really kicked in, that they were they had withdrawn their objection, so they'd opened the gates once more for onshore wind. And any uphill farm, even valley farms, or any uphill farm could have a wind turbine. They're relatively inconspicuous. That sounds a strange thing to say, they're 75 metres tall, but they're, they're relatively graceful structures. They don't produce a huge amount of noise. If you've got hundreds of these enormous, massive great wind turbines, then that's a different thing. But one or two wind turbines to help the farm itself with its energy use is a very sensible way forward. And solar farms, of course, are becoming increasingly popular. The, uh, the cost of the panels themselves has fallen 90%, some, some sources would say, over the last 10 years or so, meaning both that they're less of a crime issue, because obviously people were installing them, they were having them stolen. That seems to be less of an issue now, but the energy they produce is now more cost-effective the investments to put them in is much less. The energy they produce, therefore, turns a profit more quickly. So uh, a small array of solar panels can help the farm itself become energy self-sufficient. There are tax issues once you start exporting to the grid, but of course you start to make money. So as long as you've done the figures and worked out at what point you start to pay business rates on those solar panels compared to at what point you start to earn income from them, then as long as you've done the figures and worked it out, then there's no surprises. So um, solar, I think, even though we're not a sunny country, it's amazing how solar panels seem to be becoming enormously popular on farmland up and down, certainly southern Britain. That's really interesting. And 
I mean, the, the, the price of a kit coming down by 90%, I mean, that's surely an incentive, isn't it? In, in terms of connect, you mentioned connecting to the grid, which people often find really difficult, don't they? And that's obviously a key thing. If you're having issues connecting to the grid, is battery storage another option for people? Well, battery storage, the science fiction of, of just a few years ago, very much a reality today, is exactly as it suggests. You, you get some very unglamorous, almost like lorry containers uh, installed on your, on your farmyard, your, your land, and they're great big batteries. Typically, you would, that would be part of a large-scale wind or, wind or, or solar scheme that, that exports to the national grid. It, it needn't be. You could, I suppose, you could store the electricity on your land for use for, for your own purposes. But it's it's generally it's part of a system whereby you have more solar panels than you would otherwise need. In other words, you are exporting to the grid. The grid doesn't necessarily want all your electricity all of the time because all solar panels obviously are all generating at the same time, as in a clear sunny day. And a lot of electricity is needed at nightfall when people are, are putting the kettle on for bed, running a bath, etc. So the battery storage system is part of, generally, is part of your network connection to the national grid. And the national grid are extremely clever, as you'd imagine, as to what electricity they need, where do they need it, when do they need it. They move electricity around the country. Uh, it's generated in one place and it's, it's sort of transported. I mean, electricity moves at the speed of light so it, it moves around uh, the country and these huge batteries that are starting to uh, appear up and down the country are part of a, a way of softening surge if I may say in demand where the old cliche used to be at the semi at the half time of the cup final electricity demand surged because everybody went and made a cup of tea so they would need to know that they've got batteries up and down the country full of electricity ready to ready to fire up also you can have instead of a battery you can have a gas generator, um, which is exactly as it su suggests, a small little tiny power station, which actually looks pretty much like a battery in that they are also broadly lorry containers. And at the flick of a switch operated by someone at National Grid, your gas generator kicks in, starts producing electricity. Half an hour later, it stops again and all goes quiet. All of these things are there to help the National Grid, as we used to call it, manage national supply or regional supply or local supply or very local supply more and more people with smart electricity meters the 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 grid knows exactly who's using what exactly when and they can predict um, exactly who's going to need what electricity at what time the, the the gathering of data is either quite impressive or quite terrifying depending on your point of view and they know exactly who's going to need what when and where and they can turn these batteries on and off these battery storage or these gas generators almost at a moment's notice, to balance supply. So if you have land that is suitable for these battery storage, these sort of lorry unglamorous lorry containers, you might need one, two, three, four, maybe 10 or 20 of them. If you've got land that's suitable for that, that, that you'd get planning permission for, because they're not particularly attractive, they don't make any noise, uh, but they're not glamorous to look at. If you can put those on your land, then we're talking business you've got yourself a, a seriously valuable installation. But critically, you have to have what's called a network connection, which is frankly just a contract between you and the, uh, the regional electricity supplier for the supply and storage of electricity. And what you mustn't do 
at least not you mustn't do it without thinking what you mustn't do is let your let the guy who knocks on your farm door and says i can do you this great deal for solar solar powers with batteries you mustn't let them sign you up with the electricity company because then they will own the electricity connection and then they can sort of hold you to ransom if you do that with your eyes open fair enough but if you blunder into that without thinking it through you can end up with a much less valuable scheme than you should have because you don't own that crucial contract between the landowner and the electricity company which is which actually is the sort of gold dust in a way uh, as to how you get your electricity off your land and onto the national grid so that's something to bear in mind if you're planning a big scheme if you're just putting up some solar panels for your own usage then it's less of an issue but if you're planning a money-making you know income generating scheme then you need to bear in mind how you get the electricity off your land and onto the national grid and you just mentioned there the uh, point about not not rushing into things not signing up to, to to things too quickly without getting the proper advice are there any other potential bear traps that farmers should be aware of especially for example if if a say a developer comes knocking at the door in, in a way Everything can be a bear trap. It depends on your mindset, doesn't it? If, if the land you're talking about is over the hill and far away and out of your line of vision and, you don't, and it's not profitable farmland anyway, then you might say, who cares? If it's right next to the farmhouse, then you care enormously. So you have to, first of all, decide from what position are you coming at this? But one of the things they'll say is, oh, we'll sign up a 20-year contract. And suddenly that becomes 40. I imagine any contract for solar panels will be 35, 40 years. They may well tell you at the doorstep that it only needs to be 25. But by the time you sign it, it'll be more like 40. So that's something to bear in mind. But, but also, if you're supplying electricity, then somewhere in your locality, there needs to be a substation of sufficient capacity to handle this electricity. And that may already exist it may be somewhere else in which case fine but if it needs to be on your land then the electricity company will want a 99 year lease or possibly a freehold transfer in my experience they do not accept a 25 30 40 year lease they want a 99 year lease and you can argue with them until you're blue in the face they just that's what they want so suddenly you've 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 shaken hands on the doorstep for a 25 year contract and now you've got a 99-year substation. Now, substations are not particularly large, not particularly obtrusive, but they, they are a thing that you might not have wanted possibly in the middle of your farmyard. So that's something to bear in mind. And so my advice obviously would be don't sign anything until you've thought the whole thing through. Take advice about where is it all going to go? Where, but crucially, where is the electricity going to go? So it's not very well generating it. How is it going to get off your land and onto the national grid? And that's the bit that they, the, the guy who knocks on your door will, will do his level best to forget to mention because they want ownership of that piece so that then they can, they can knock down the value of your piece because you, you don't own the cable that joins you to the network. And if you don't own that cable, the value of your investment is, is diminished. So that's, that's what I would say. Bear in mind the kit that goes with the solar panels where does it go and who owns it? Yeah, that's great advice. And you just mentioned there about returns on your investment. I mean, 
how financially beneficial is all this? And I know a lot of people will have heard of the, the feed-in tariff, which is a government subsidy. What else is available in terms of subsidies and, and support for, for renewable energy schemes? Yeah, well, l- less and less it has been. But the, there's, there's the, new, the new smart export guarantee for small users. It only applies to small users. And that fitting in with the technology of the smart meter you know, anyone who's watched the TV in the last 10 years will have seen a thousand adverts for smart meters, smart meters, smart meters. And the government are really very keen that we all have a smart meter so that the energy companies can exactly plot who's using what. But one of the things with it is if you sell electricity to the grid, they know exactly what you've sold to them as well as what you've bought from them. So the old feed-in tariff, that which still applies if you've got an existing contract, the old feed-in tariff made certain energy assumptions, but the new smart export guarantee for the smaller generators is there are no assumptions. It's an actual meter reading. Does it go up? Does it go down? And of course, the, the rate for coming in is different to the rate for going out. So you never get quite back what you what it costs you to buy it in. I suppose that's probably fair enough. Well, whether it's fair enough or not, that's that's how it is. So the grants for these things are not particularly generous, but... It's a, it's at least it's a transparent system. You can see you could if you really wanted to, you could sit and watch your meter going up and down, and you would know exactly what you were going to get because you could see the figures. So at least it's a it's a it's a clear and open and um, an apparent system, and you you can monitor what you've got. If you're if you're a small operator, of course you don't pay business rates on the value of your equipment, as long as you use at least ninety percent of the power. The danger is if you then sell off some farmland or, or you make energy efficiencies on your farm or, of course, you install some more renewable energy equipment and you, and you therefore change that 90% threshold and you step to, 90, you step to 89%, then suddenly you have, to, you have to start paying business rates. So that's a, uh, a, a, that's a huge trap that people can fall into if they are starting off on the journey on the basis that they're just generating for their own use. And then they kind of fall in love with it and they decide to expand. Suddenly they become an electricity producer. And then suddenly the whole thing is, is subject to business rates. That's a trap that you, you can't avoid it, but you, you must know that it's coming and you must account for it accordingly. Is there anything else, Alistair, that you think we've missed that you, you think we need to, uh, to cover? I think I just sort of bang the drum for renewable energy, really. That, that in this country, our energy usage appears to have peaked 2018, 2019, uh, I know it's difficult to draw trends, but 2018 was lower than 2014, shall we say, and 2020 is currently lower than 2018. So uh, it may be that we have peaked at at our top energy usage due to us all being a bit more careful with it. But we still import huge amounts, huge amounts of electricity from France, where it's generated by nuclear power. So if being self-sufficient bothers you then the the onshore renewable boom that we're that we're experiencing is a good thing if being green is your thing then the onshore renewable energy boom is a good thing but for if nothing else for for long-term price stability for all of us having a little bit more capacity in the uk is a really good thing because currently we have to import a large chunk of our energy from overseas and that strikes me as not a good idea. So uh, if, if landowners, if farmers could, could embrace this green revolution, it would be good for all of us, which can't be a bad thing. 
Thanks to Liv and Alistair, the import of that green revolution will help us reduce our reliance on foreign energy imports, which can't be a bad thing. You're still ploughing on, and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. Final story this week is the sort which, during my days as a local newspaper reporter, would have sent me into a buzz of excitement at the prospect of some bee-based headlines. And that is because this week, July 13th to 19th, is Bees Needs Week, an annual event coordinated by DEFRA, working alongside charities, businesses, farming and conservation groups, as well as academic institutions to raise awareness of bees and other pollinators. DEFRA, championing the farmed environment and the Nature Friendly Farming Network have joined forces to promote and celebrate the work of farmers and growers in protecting pollinator populations. Farmers Guardian recently did a feature on pig farming brothers Mark and Paul Haywood, who have succeeded in feeding one million bees thanks to an innovative and pioneering project that saw them turn over large swathes of their land to wildflowers. Four years ago, Mark and Paul decided to farm 33 hectares of land around the site at Dingley Dell Pork in Suffolk in the most wildlife positive way they could. This involves planting nectar-rich blooms with the aim of embracing a more eco-friendly and sustainable way of farming. And recently, under the guidance of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, a scientific study was carried out monitoring insect activity on the plot, which found they were feeding more than 1 million bees at any one time. Bees and other pollinators play a crucial role in food production and agriculture, as we all know, and they contribute the equivalent of more than £500 million a year to the UK agriculture and food production economy. And all that is by improving crop quality and quantity, and we know at Farmers Guardian that farmers want to protect pollinators and other insects and create wildlife-rich habitats. But you can do your own thing as well, and there's five top tips as part of Bees Needs Week. That is, grow more flowers, shrubs and trees, let your garden grow wild, cut your grass less often, don't disturb insect nests and hibernation spots, and think carefully about whether to use pesticides. Now, whether that list gets me out of cutting the lawn on a Sunday, which is the domain of the middle-aged man with two kids, I'm not sure. But you can share your stories on social media all this week using the hashtag BeesNeeds. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back, as ever, next Tuesday. But from us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well, and goodbye for now.